Welcome to Health Tech Hustle. We exist to share stories of the brave entrepreneurs helping to solve the most important problems in digital health today. We interview top leaders in health tech and bring them onto our show each week to listen and learn from their story with your host, Rodney Hu, founder of 209 Digital. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Health Tech Hustle podcast. I'm your host today, and as always, Rodney Hu, and today I'm joined by another very special guest, Mr. Jim Keen. He is the VP of Infrastructure and Operations at Journey Health, and he leads the, like I said, infrastructure and operation, which is focused on designing, testing, and implementing digitally driven intelligent operations and driving digital transformation for a large health insurance company. Um, so I'm kind of excited to have him on, give him an opportunity to share his story, share his journey, how he got into healthcare and the impact he's trying to make. Um, so with that being said, Jim, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, Rodney, it's great to be on and I'm looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, no problem. Why don't you give people a quick background of kind of who you are and a little bit about your healthcare background and how you ended up over at Journey? Sure. So I guess I'll go back to when I was 27 or 29 and I just left business school and I was being recruited for a trader job on Wall Street because I spent the prior summer in New York at Solomon Brothers on the bond trading desk. And it was an exciting time because that was when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and I never saw such volatility in markets and all the old timers told me it was a pretty unique period. I had a great time there. But I was kind of looking around at the people, and they were all, even at that day and age, making seven figures as traders. And I was told if I got hired, I could do that. And I thought, wow, this would be easy. And I'm a lower middle class kid, so we, my family never had a ton of money. And it was pretty tempting, and my family thought I was crazy. But I also looked around and saw that the people in there had a lot of money, but they were super unhappy. And they uh, were living paycheck to paycheck of all things because they ran their expenses up and just were trapped. There's nowhere else in the world that could make that kind of money. So I actually turned down all the jobs out of business school, loaded all my stuff in my car and drove to Alaska where I had family. And I spent the summer playing volleyball and then realized I had to get a job. And so I went to work for the first job I found and it happened to be a startup medical device company. And they had just gotten FDA approval to release their device. And it was a programmable robotic device that was installed in surgery. And it would literally grow limbs out an inch a month uh, once it was installed. So uh, I became the director of production. And I got them FDA certified as an ISO 9000 factory. And we... When we did get our certification, a doctor out of Baltimore calls me and says, hey, I want to be the first one to install this. And I went, that's fantastic. And so I hopped on a plane, flew out there, and uh, I spent, I stayed up all night because I realized we didn't have a doctor or a patient manual. So wrote that up, got on, uh, designed the package myself because we hadn't uh, designed a, a repeatable factory-based packaging, but it looked good. And so we flew out there. I handed that to the doctor. He said, hey, where are you going? You're, you're going to install this tomorrow in surgery. And I'd never been in surgery before. So I went through uh, the planning with him. The next day we got up, I gloved up, and uh, we installed the robot on the guy's leg. And literally, he called me in during the surgery. And for two hours, I sat there and installed this thing on this guy's leg. 
And then he uh, finished the operation. And I walked out and this turned out to be a really key event for me because there was a family there and they ran over and said, how's our son doing, doctor? And I almost said, well, I'm not a doctor. I'm just an MBA. But uh, I said, well, it looked like it went really well. And I said, do you understand actually what your son, what the, he, he just went through and what this is going to do for him? And they said, no, nah, his, his leg has always been five inches shorter than the other. And the doctor just said he'd fix it. And I went, well, I got to explain how this device works or because if my device fails, then the, the, you know, the doctor is going to blame my device and not kind of the fact that the, the patient didn't understand what they were supposed to do. So I actually took about an hour and talked to the family about how it was important. And I went back and rewrote my patient guide. And I ended up uh, becoming CEO of that company because I discovered fraud and uh, none of my suppliers were getting paid. And the board appointed me as CEO to clean it all up which I did and then got it fixed um, because I had reported the, the fraud to the board and it served as a good reference for me. I, but I also at that point really realized that if I wanted my career to go anywhere, it was nice in Alaska, but I need to go to a more technology centric area. I moved to Portland and because of my honesty, uh, the auditor felt really good was Pete Marwick and they introduced me to a biotech company. And then I've been in med tech ever since. Uh, and, 1995, Netscape went public and I saw my first browser. And what I realized is this was going to transform how consumers could access health information. So no longer would they have to be in the dark and completely reliant on the doctors or the nurses. They actually could go directly to the information and figure it out. So I started a company called Sapien Health Network. And the idea was it was the first patient community company. So we would accumulate all this information around breast cancer. And we started out and we almost failed. And what happened was at, in 1995, everybody who came to the internet thought the internet was a magazine. So you had editors and you could only publish 10,000 words. It was like a regular paper-based publication. And I had all these really old guys who were uh, actually in their 40s and 50s like I am now. And the younger people actually knew how the internet worked or, or should work. And we one day threw up this uh, message board where people could enter in uh, their comments about their community. And within about, I'd say, four hours, it was filled with these people typing out questions and other people answering them. And all my editor type people were like, well, look at this, it's completely misspelled words. These people don't know how to write. And I said, yeah, but look at the raw emotion here. This woman just posted that she uh, walked out of her doctor's office with a diagnosis of breast cancer and she was so in shock, she didn't even ask all of her questions during her 10 minute slot with the doctor. And now she's scared to death and she basically thinks she's gonna die and leave her kids. And then everybody on that message board jumped in and said, hey, no, everything's okay. Here, here's the five item checklist I used. Here's the questions you need to ask. Don't take this from these people, blah, blah, blah. And it was super powerful. And I realized because my VCs were putting pressure on me that I had to cut costs, that I had the completely wrong organization to support my company. And I uh, basically sat down and said, all right, who do I need to just be a patient community company? I'm not going to write any more content. I'm going to let the consumers write the content and we'll have uh, probably somebody keeping an eye on the message boards. So 
in the end, that became a web blog technology. And my company had the original patent for uh, blogging, which then, you know, multi-threaded message boards that were searchable. And back then that seemed like a really big deal. So we uh, did that. And within um, about three years, I had the top 20 patient communities in different diseases. We had breast cancer, prostate cancer, uh, women's health as far as reproductive. And we had this formula where we figure out um, what our insight was that when somebody gets sick, they join a tribe. And if they survive or die is dependent on if they can find a tribal elder. And that was our metaphor. So if you had breast cancer, you uh, didn't need to talk to a doctor or nurse. You need to find an experienced breast cancer patient who knew how to navigate the system. And at the time, breast cancer had about a 45% survival rate. But if you found that kind of tribal elder to uh, in, in introduce you to the tribe, then you had a, a much higher rate of survival. So our job was to map out the tribal knowledge of breast cancer. So we'd set the community up that way, and then we put the message board up. We also realized early on, one of the early discoveries of, of these message boards that we're all familiar with now many years later is that there's always people on the board who don't have the best interests of the other people in the community. Maybe they're trying to sell stuff or they just have uh, toxic personalities. And so we ended up uh, bringing on uh, moderators for, say, the breast cancer community. And it turned out the best people for doing that were social workers. They were highly educated. They had a master's in social work. Uh, they're also hideously undercompensated. And most of them were pretty burned out, but they still wanted to make a difference. And they turned out to be fantastic uh, moderators of disease communities. So we went along and we'd grown that to about 500,000 people uh, in our communities over 20 communities. We were on Oprah Winfrey uh, with our breast cancer community. The Susan Komen Foundation got started through us. You know, a lot of great things happened as far as patient advocacy. And in 1999, uh, I met Jeff Arnold, who had WebMD. And at the time, WebMD was a doctor's service and wanted to get into two patient communities. And we were the dominant force. So we merged and sold the company. And I became the first EVP of WebMD consumer. And my VCs, we only had about 5 million bucks in at the time in series A and B investment, but we returned $186 million to our investors. So it was about the best return those uh, funds had ever had. So for a while, we were like minorly famous uh, in the late nineties. And then after that, I became a VC because I was one of the first executives to do start to finish the technology stack, the user experience, revenue channel activation. Uh, and we had to overcome a lot of barriers. Like my company was responsible for running the first banner ad at the time on our communities because I was trying to figure out how to monetize it. And immediately I got sideways with the FCC and I had to go testify in front of Congress why an ad on a website was different than television ads. And so I had to explain, believe it or not, to a congressperson or a con congressional committee why a TV was different than a, a computer. Um, and it caused all kinds of problems. We got sued by Pfizer. Um, and there was a lot of pressure put on us to, to shut that thing down. 
But in the end, the they had to redo all the laws, and that's how uh, advertising started to be allowed on TV because they said, if you can do it on the computer, why can't you do it on TV? So a lot of things got kicked off by the that time from 1995 to 2000. So then I've sold my company. I'm all happy about it, and I have more money than I could ever would have dreamed of when I was uh, running papers or hustling and doing other things as a kid. And I joined the VC fund that had funded me because I was one of the first round trip executives. And I had about four hour, uh, four, four months, excuse me, of a lot of fun in the old internet bubble. And then the bubble burst in March of 2011 and immediately funding dried up for all the funds. And we had about 50 companies in our portfolio. So they had me triage the companies because we had to decide which ones, what we're going to do with everything. And what had happened is a lot of excess had crept into all of these companies, whether they had viable business models or not. But we bucketed into three groups. We had the companies we were going to continue to fund, but they needed to, to clean up their operational act. We had companies that maybe in a category were number three, and there's no way they're going to overcome one or two. So we had an investment bank that we worked with to write up operating mem uh, memorandums and position the company to sell. And then part of that would also mean that we'd go in and restructure. Uh, it was tricky, though, because a lot of times in that, those days to sell that company, you needed to keep the key staff. So you need to persuade them that they would do really well. So we put in a full-on set of retention bonuses, and it was super complex. It was harder, actually, than the first one. And then the last one was... Actually, even though it's kind of brutal, it's the easiest. We, they're ones that we just said don't have a viable business model and nobody's interested in buying them. So we would just uh, wind those companies down. So I did that process uh, probably for a year. It was pretty instructive. And in fact, learning how to uh, exit a company is almost import as important as learning how to start up and grow it. And I've used that ever since. And then I just uh, was a VC. And I decided I actually like being an entrepreneur more. So I have never gone back to investing, although I know just tons of VCs at this point. And I did a couple more startups. My last one was in 2013, where I saw there's a coming, a coming movement of telehealth and direct to consumer access. And so a lot of people uh, were wanting to get their own diagnostic tests and not just have to go to a doctor's office because they kind of knew what they wanted. Like, I think I have a thyroid condition. And so I put together a company where consumers could order diagnostic tests directly without having to go to a doctor's appointment. And then when they got their results from Quest or uh, from LabCorp, they would also have pre-bundled with it a 20-minute telehealth consult to uh, go over your diagnostic results. And we made it a super nice graphical interface. It wasn't a bunch of numerical cutoffs for like A1C or blood glucose, et cetera. You would get it and you could see trending. It was red, yellow, or green. You know, what was the trend on each of your biomarkers? So you could actively track your biology and you could screen share it with your doctor in the midst of your telehealth consult. So that was in 2011 to 13. That was right before the digital health boom. And we were critically acclaimed for our product design, for our business model innovation. We're on the cover of Fast Company, et cetera. 
But I had a really hard time getting my Series C because 2013 was about a year before the uh, the digital health financial boom took off with the, the amount of money that came into the business. And I couldn't persuade my board, board that I actually had a viable revenue model, even though I had shown that I could acquire a customer for about 27 bucks and I could do first year monetization of about 170, which for me, I always look for at least a four to one trade on acquisition versus total revenues. And excuse me, so we made the decision to uh, prep the company and sell it. So I sold it to a private company and I still hold those shares, although I didn't like the company, but I didn't have a ton of choice. Um, and uh, But what's interesting, I just this year heard that they're in registration. So maybe my investors will get something. So that was an example of a, a well-designed, critically acclaimed company that missed the funding cycle. And then after that, for the first time in my life, I did not have an idea I was super fired up about. I've always had good ideas. And I was always fired up about them. And it doesn't matter how great your idea is. By, by this point in my life, I know if you get into a business and you're not fired up about it, it doesn't matter if it's a good or a bad idea. It's going to be really hard to make it work because, it, it, you know, you see people get these big term sheets or this and that. I, I can tell you, I've never had a company that was easy to finance you have to go pitch to a lot of people and you really have to get your business narrative down. Uh, and you have to be able to communicate what your business is about because they're eyeballing you all along the way to see, does the business story make sense? But can this person communicate that story? So you have to have that passion and whatnot. So uh, I, the good thing was, I mentioned I knew a lot of VCs, though, and I knew most of the healthcare VCs in Silicon Valley and New York. So I ended up starting a practice from 2013 to uh, 2016, where I would be parachuted in as a, a C-level executive to either fix their product, fix their operations, or fix the revenue model. And I did that for a while. Uh, had really interesting clients. For example, one was a sports league on NBC Sports. It was a startup sports league that was around uh, fitness races. So I was CEO of that, and I ended up producing nine TV shows on NBC Sports. So kind of a, uh, an interesting sidelight that was barely related to healthcare. I guess you could qualify as health and fitness. I did a uh, pharmacy benefit manager that was driven by data science, so lots of interesting companies, and I had picked the category of Series B or C companies, three to twenty million dollars in revenue. There's always one of those troubled portfolio companies in a VC's portfolio. And then, last part of my story is in 2016, I was approached by Cambia to bring in all the background experience in high-paced uh, agile-driven companies that uh, and that I've taken through growth curves and set up uh, operations and whatnot. And so they brought me in and this company was a 103 year old company, one of the first Blue Cross Blue Shields. They were starting to get a little bit worried about the pace of technology. They were not running at a high clock speed. They were seeing all these digital applications coming out and they're trying to figure out how could they modernize themselves from a 20th century way of doing business to 21st century. And I thought that sounded really interesting. Uh, it meant I wouldn't have to travel very much because it was based in my hometown of Portland. And I'd get to see my kids through high school 
Uh, so I didn't think I'd be there more than a year or two, but I've actually, I'm coming on five years and it's the longest I've ever worked any place. I still kind of kick myself at times uh, that I've been here this long, but you know, they've treated me well. And I actually work on really uh, intense, complex problems internally. And I'm pretty much like a, an internal entrepreneur. So I've actually been uh, at this point, become a pretty unique pers- person I've found is that I've done both startups uh, in the classic Silicon Valley mode, but I also became an internal startup in, in a $10 billion company. And, uh, and that's what's gotten me to, to where I am today. So I'll pause there. That was kind of a long narrative, but um, back to you, Rodney. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a lot of information to digest, but that's for sure an interesting story. Um, just kind of hearing the different phases, I guess, that you can say that you went through and how you're able to learn from each each step and how you're able to apply what you learn from one stage of your life to another and then stack on those wins. Um, but it's also interesting kind of just hearing your thought process and how you're able to string together all these topics and ideas um, together, um, not just about your story, but just how you go about thinking about problems and whatnot. So I could see why you are in the role that you are in, but you did mention a good point that you're an entrepreneur, but you're also like an internal entrepreneur at your point now. Um, But what do you think is like the traits that you carry over from your past entrepreneurship endeavors to what you're doing now and are there any like similarities that you see that are kind of helping you um, in your current role well it's interesting is prior to being at this company you know you you always carry around this kind of almost in i can't think of a different word but entitled uh, arrogance, like, oh, look at me, I'm a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, I move so fast, I'm agile, we do everything better than big companies. But it's kind of a love-hate relationship, because you say, but we sure could use access to like the 2 million uh, lives that this insurance company has. So we need to go partner with them. And most companies don't think about how to partner with large companies as well as they, they might. And that included me. And I've been on the other side here and I've had literally carbon copies of a younger me come through saying, Oh, look at me. I'm super smart and fast and nimble. And I'm, I'm so hip and cool because I do startups and I swim in the sea. And if only you guys were like us, but you know, the thing that I didn't, I probably could have used back then if it was, the startup gym uh, with digital health approaching enterprise gym is actually understanding the process and not criticizing the process as it were. And what I mean by that is, for example, if you want to target an insurance company, you need to uh, know that we have to be licensed by state insurance boards in every single state. And they're all different. And the states make us post by June 1, usually, although COVID changed this a bit, our rates for all different procedures. And there's something like 10,000 different billable codes that 
we need to enter in numbers in each state. And we have to have all that done by June uh, for introduction in January 1 of every year. So our, our cadence runs on almost a year and a half type of cadence. And based on that, once we're done with that, we go into third quarter and we sit down and have to figure out how we're going to budget for things. And I never realized how complex. Uh, so most companies now are pretty multi-matrixed because they have to be, uh, you know, team oriented and they put teams together and whatnot. So because of that, in Q3, we need to sit down and figure out our budgets and all that uh, for the next year based on what we just published as far as, uh, you know, what we're going to deliver for rates and how we're going to pay things and all that. State. And we're locked in. We don't have a lot of flexibility on that because the state, if we change it, um, well, they won't let us change it. So it's hard to do any walk-ons. And then once our budget process and strategic planning goes through in Q3, then, you know, managers like me get allocated our, our money, right? And we pursue our initiatives. We go hire people or we decide to write software of some sort. And so we always have kind of a running roadmap of the things we'd like to accomplish um, in like a 12 to 18 month period, because then when this comes up, we make sure it's in the budget. So just somebody knocking on our, our door or sending us some spam uh, LinkedIn email saying, hey, I'd like to meet you and talk about your mainframe problems, or uh, I'd like to talk to you about omnichannel communications or subscription management or any of the 20 odd sub business categories in the tech stack. It's not going to work that way so, because even if you came in and had that one successful pitch, I have to go then. And so the instant I go to procurement, if there happens to be a vendor I like, and even me, I'm a senior VP, I um, have a, I have to provide them at least three vendors to, for them to make an RFP comparison. And that process generally you can count on it taking three or four months. And then once you get through that, then I'll consider putting you into my budget next year if I don't have money this year. Now, sometimes things that are good for the company happen and you have to do what's called an off-budget cycle. Uh, but that's super rare and it's a ton of work for whoever your sponsor is. So I had no appreciation for that whole process before. And speaking of easy ways, because the other good news is, is once you get into the budget cycle of an enterprise, it teaches you how to go do that for all the other types of blues. And there's last count, there's 36 blues in the U S if we're rolled together as one insurance company, we control 40% of the insurance market. So if you can address one blue, you can get all the other ones. Now, each one, you'll have to go through contracting and procurement on the, all that, but you'll learn a lot by just working with one blue uh, and get in there. So you just have to decide, okay, can I take two years just to cultivate getting inside but once I get in there, there's a big reward because it's hard to get fired uh, once that happens because you kind of went through your version of the Blues Olympics, as it were. So uh, I'd say the biggest thing that I wish I'd had back as a healthcare startup guy, you know, I'm sitting there eyeballing all this traffic and installed base and revenue channel. Uh and thought, wow, if these guys would just turn their brains on, I'd make a lot of money. Well, uh, I needed to actually understand the process better. Okay. How do you, how do you know what to prioritize first or like, how do you even go about thinking 
about solving a problem? Like, is there a framework that you follow? Like, how do you know what to prioritize, like, what to focus on? Well, so I actually, one thing I borrowed from my startup days that I brought inside here since I'm, I'm an internal entrepreneur and I have to go persuade people throughout the company, key opinion leaders, hey, this is what we should be doing as a company. So I have consistently used the Sequoia Capital uh, business plan guide, and it just shows you about 10 slides that if you hit all those, you'll have your story down, and it always follows the format, and I follow that format no matter what. I tailor it a little bit internally here because this is an internal economy, but it goes through Here's the uh, problem statement. Here's how we're solving it. And why us, why now? And here's our unique advantage. And, you know, and the slides go through that. It's not that fancy, but it's one of, the, I'd say, one of the most dominant uh, kind of organizing outlines. And Airbnb, actually, it was uh, their original one that Sequoia funded. And they liked it so much, they put that up there. But if you Google uh, Sequoia, capital business plan, the link will pop right up. And it's pretty, it's pretty famous. So I always use that as a starter. And I try to say, all right, I'm treating everything like it is a business plan that I need to pitch for money. Because internally, that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm pitching to my CFO. And then I try it on, I start talking about the business. And I usually I have the, the waffle theory on business uh, narratives is your first one's always kind of misshapen and doesn't look that great. So I always put it in front of somebody. I don't care if they fund me or not, just to see how they react. And the other thing I found is if you run a narrative by somebody, about the third time, you've heard the top five objections to uh, the business idea that you have or your message or your narrative, but it surfaces the flaws. And then I go back and, and I, I usually, I love feedback. So then I'll tailor that story. And once that story takes hold, uh, one thing I'm known for is putting together a really good business story uh, that's lean, but it, it has storytelling in it. It also has the call to action and it gets through uh you know, pretty efficiently, whatever time slots. And then I'll practice four different things in that. I'll practice, I've got the full-on VC hour, okay? Well, they've analyzed presentations. If you spend more than 20 minutes talking at an audience, they turn their brains off. So in an hour, I plan on, uh, and, and I've broken it almost down by the minute. The first five minutes are chit-chat. And you may think, well, this, this is kind of like nothing or whatnot, but usually investors and VCs in the first five minutes, they want to know if they can just interact with you. And if you are somebody that they can talk to and they just want to hear you, how do you, how you do things? Right. And then uh, the next, then you get in the presentation. Uh, a key thing I always ask actually on anybody is I, I may see that time slot in front of me, but they may have had something happen where they feel like they have to leave. So I always reconfirm. I say, Hey, uh, before we get going, can you tell me, I just want to confirm we have a half hour or we have an hour. And, and that's super important because if you get like partway in your prison, they go, Oh, Hey, sorry, I had this thing from a bribe to leave. Then you didn't adjust to, to your time slot to theirs. But let's say in the hour, you get through that uh, five minutes, chit chat, 20 minutes. So at about uh, minute 25, you need to be done with your pre-sale. 
and then transition to questions. Now, what happens on Prezos is you will get in and you'll get a discussion on each slide. So it's not that you're done at minute 25, it's that you have a combined 20 odd minutes on your slides of you talking. So they ask a lot of questions where they may just save them, right? But uh, you know, ending before your time slots up is great. And using your time efficiently is great too. The uh, other tricks that I am really picky about how I design my presentations, for example, I always ask myself, what's the purpose of this slide? What am I trying to convey? What's my closing line on this slide? So you gotta know what you're gonna, how you're closing this slide off and what concept you're introducing. The other thing as the uh, business story evolves, I'm really trying to, uh, in my first, say, three practice runs with kind of my waffle theory type audiences is I want to hear what are the typical five questions this business story elicits by, say, like slide three, because it means that um, there, if somebody has a question in the back of their mind throughout your presentation, it's going to actually distract them from coming to the conclusion you want them to come to. So the sooner that you can say surface those five objections, you know, embed it somewhere in your narrative or combine with your narrative and the slide, like maybe you present the problem slide and then your solution. If you could say eliminate five, the top five cognitive barriers in the first three slides or the first five minutes of your Prezo, then your probability of getting to the next phase or ultimately getting somebody to invest in you just went way up. So, so there's just uh it's, you know, business narratives really fascinate me. And I've gotten super almost atomic level about my process on that. And I've used that in good stead, whether I'm outside the company or internally here. Oh, that's, man, that's super interesting. The Sequoia Capital Business Plan. I'm going to have to look into that. Um, but another thing that you had just mentioned is the power of story, being able to tell story to elicit emotion and get people to like take action or think about things in a way that the information that you're putting out there is more digestible. And I feel like, like you said, you want to limit distractions. You don't want to confuse them. Otherwise you lose their interest. And um, storytelling is a great way to really simplify complex ideas, but also be able to keep it engaging and uh, keep, keep it interesting as far as like your business idea. Um, but a question I had relating to this framework is like, when you're going through presenting this, is it just to the the investors, the VCs? Because I also heard you mention earlier in the podcast about other people trying to um, build partnerships. And so would yeah. this be a good way to kind of approach part, like adding more people to a partnership deal or something like that? I, I use it for everything. It You just need to say like, if you're pitching a prospective partner, you may not give them like your financial forecast, right? Like you do for a VC, but you'll still talk to them. Hey, here's the problem we're solving or here's the problem and get them to agree. Yeah, I recognize this is a problem I'm trying to solve too. Great, we agree. You, that is a problem. Guess what? We solved it. Here's how we're solving it. And by the way, why us, why now? Well, this business wouldn't have been possible three years ago because uh, AI didn't exist. And so you then, um, why, why ask why now is actually what I call also your urgency slide. Because if they feel like, like, well, you know, 
I don't really need to move on this right now. Uh, the why is why now is uh, why do you need to do this now and why what and why it needs to be with us. You know, we're the ones that first recognized it or we have the best solution. If you don't move right now, you're going to miss out. So those types of um, things apply equally, whether it's to you're trying to raise $50 million, you're trying to get $20 million internally from your stingy CFO, or you're trying to get uh, the really awesome telehealth partner that you really want to have come in and sign up with you and do a cross-distribution deal. So, because you want your partners to be super enthused about you, and uh, you know, it, it, it applies everywhere. Storytelling is the biggest thing I've learned in my whole life, I believe. Nice. Are there any like resources that you can kind of share that have helped you master your storytelling craft and be able to tell stories in a way that can influence people? Yeah. So I've um, periodically read books that have elevated my game. And then what, but what happens is that the way stories have been told over the different types of mediums have changed so much. I've found that I've had to stay current with, okay, the best way to do that now, you know, for example, we've all experienced the last year and a half of uh, shelter in place and COVID, right? Well, that really changed how I had to do my pitches in that, it is it on the surface looks like it's voiceover of slides, but we've gone down internally in my company to a form factor of a 30 minute time slot, but you give a five minute, Hey, we're coming to the end of the time slot. So it's really 25 minutes. And if you have the two or three minute chit chat in there, the, the form factor of that is a lot different. And, uh, Otherwise, having complex slides, too, because people may have a 13-inch screen, you need to think about that. And then you also need to think about a lot of people have variable internet. So if all of a sudden the internet kind of starts tweaking, you may lose the, uh, the visual. So you need to be able to talk to the slide and say, hey, by the way, I know you can't see or we need to switch off our camera. So we stopped dropping packets but let's just keep going here and, and I can take you through this and I'll make sure you get the deck. And then the other thing that uh, is a dilemma too, is if you do your slides as a mail around, you may need to do some bullets that go with each slide uh, and say, Hey, by the way, you can mail this around. Uh, so the current book, book I've been reading, it, it's really situational. So the problem I'm trying to solve right now is with uh, COVID and digital transformation, there was a McKinsey study last year that said in the first three months of the pandemic, digital transformation advanced five years. And so a lot of the things that I thought were going to take 10 or 20 years to do are actually happening right now. And the biggest thing is, is that I've now uh, put together a framework for how do we embed AI throughout our company. And so the story I'm putting together is uh, mixed workforces that are driving digital transformation. And the scenario that we're contending with is that with voice to text, chat, uh, push notifications, emails, uh, video chat, telehealth, all those different things, I've had to go read a lot of different white papers on how digital transformation works. 
And so I didn't really change my storytelling around, uh, you know, kind of by any particular book, but I have changed my storytelling around how the different formats work. So I'll really read up on what the, the best way to say project yourself over a Zoom call is. So that, that's kind of, I, I don't have a, a ton of, of insight on that. Now, the other thing I've had to read recently is I did look at various parts of the uh, storytelling and one part I thought that I wasn't conveying well in the enterprise is that we are driven by our yearly uh, incentive plan and hitting our goals. And so one thing I did, I read in the last nine months is called Measure What Matters. And that was by John Doerr, the really famous VC. And actually structuring your company to where you have OKRs, objectives, and key results. Uh, I realized I've been doing it wrong. And yet to, to get my business idea across, I had to communicate, here's our objective and here's the key results. So I read that last year and that's been the latest addition to, to how I um, you know, put together a business story uh, for an internal enterprise. But I actually wish I'd had that type of input back when I, had my, when I was the CEO of a company. Nice. And just kind of listening to you talk and listening to how your mind works and based off your past experiences, whether it's your own entrepreneurship endeavors or what you're doing internally, I feel like as a leader, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of moving parts that you have to manage. And so how are you able to manage your time effectively, like knowing that you have to wear many hats? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I, feel like I just get on top of that and then something changes in the economy or your company or you get new responsibility and then you have a temporary overflow. I just was on vacation last week and I came back and I hadn't seen a lot of my family since COVID had started. So my uh, brother came out with his nephews and, and so my wife asked me to stay off my computer which I did, but I was kind of dreading it because I came back and you always have the dilemma of declaring uh, email bankruptcy. Uh, you know, whether you should even just wait for people to respond to you. But the way I do that is in the past year, I developed our etiquette for the company about how do you interact with people on Zoom or Teams. And so one thing you can do from a macro standpoint is uh, influence how people interact with each other and what etiquette is. So what did that mean? Well, First of all, I had a lot of people working for me to have young families. And I thought, you know, there's no school or um, people able to drop kids off at daycare. And it's not fair to my coworkers who have young families uh, to actually have to start meetings, say, at 730. So I actually have an etiquette policy in place that you, if you're going to schedule meetings with people, it has to happen between nine and 11.30 in the morning or one to four. And the rest of the time it's, uh, is courtesy time before and after, you know, before nine, after four. And then lunchtime is right around the time you have to start breaking and, and you know, feeding kids or taking a, a note for uh, class or whatnot. And then we did put that five minute break between meetings 
and I'm pretty hard and fast on that. So we do meeting etiquette and that actually tends to restrain things a bit. I actually also, uh, in a large company like this, there tend to be a ton of meetings. And so I periodically will sit down and make a list of every standing committee or meeting that I get invited to on a, say, a weekly, monthly, or quarterly basis. And what happens is a lot of times the purpose for that may, meeting may have changed and gone away, but the meeting kind of is like a, a zombie. It's still alive and, and but not accomplishing a lot. And so you doing an audit of the past 90 days, what meetings you've gone to by looking at your calendar. I just go through and count them up. Then I say, okay, do I really need this meeting or not? And who's involved? I look at the guest list. And that actually is pretty worthwhile investment because you can call up the people and say, hey, you know, I don't think the purpose for this meeting when we originally came together is to solve this problem. It looks like we've solved the problem or the problem isn't being solved. Uh, so that type of meeting can probably be disappeared or you can change the composition or, or the format. So change. So first one's etiquette um, about time bars on when meetings happen. Secondly is, um, you know, purpose of the meeting, meeting audits of what you've had for the last 90 days. And that thins it out. Uh, secondly, if you run Slack or if you run uh, Microsoft Teams, which I've used both, we use Teams right now setting up channels about recurring topics. So for example, we launched uh, in the past year, we changed to Workday as our HR IT system for benefits, which means you record your time there, you track your vacation, you look at your pay stubs, you know, all that stuff. Well, the old system we have was everybody's well-trained in it. And so I just put in charge of change management for that. And so uh, I was on this change team and we had to go through and train people how to use that. So standing up a Teams channel about any question you have on Workday was super helpful because you didn't generate those long email strings. Uh, as much as possible to, to reduce email, I try to force things into SMS messaging on your Teams channels uh, and try to focus them on channel-specific topics like uh, workday questions, or I have a question about AI, you know, so I have an AI channel and I make sure it's super specific. So all those comments and questions go there and people, whoever can answer it uh, the best will just chime in. And that has really cut down my emails quite a bit. Um, I would say the other thing is that I try to figure out if anything I'm doing is kind of over communicating. So that can be a problem where you may say, you know, if I just wrote out this really long email, it would explain to somebody what's going on. But there's a really old technology that we should all be aware of that sometimes is far more effective and it actually reduces conflict, which is to pick up a telephone and call somebody. And then lastly, I make a list of people internally that even though I don't talk to them a lot, if I can talk to them, they'll influence acceptance of my work through the little ecosystem, the 5,500 employees of Cambia, which Journey's part of. And so I have standing 30-minute check-ins once a quarter where I will just uh, – we'll, we'll just – 
call and say, what are you working on? Here's what I'm working on. And I always try to leave them with something I'm working on so they know uh, how I'm thinking about things. So when it comes up and if I'm not in the meeting, I say, oh, Jim talked to me about that. And that actually does pre-work for me. So I find that's super useful is to maintain my network. Man, you'd be giving some like super valuable points, man. Um, I feel like I can sit here and talk to you all day. Um, but we kind of been going on for a minute, but I do have like one more question that I want to ask and it's pertaining to like your role specifically. And it's like, how important is infrastructure and operations when it comes to a company? Like, I know it's way more important now that you're working with the multi-million dollar company, but even when you were like working with startups, like how important of a role does that infrastructure and operations play? Yeah, so it, it's important for you know all forms of companies, given that we're all digitally enabled companies, from the point that you talk to your engineers about how they're writing up their user stories, what they're focused on, you're trying to make sure that the use of engineering and development resources matches up with what you've uh, been instructing your product people as to the value prop and how we're trying to uh, deliver value to whoever our target market is, but it's a continuum, right? And it's all cross-functional. You just can't have dev handoff to, to products. So they have to work together. Uh, but then the one thing I've been trying to correct here where I am and which I've seen in other companies is a lot of times product management people think that their product ends when they roll the product out and they go give it to a sales guy to, to invent how to sell it uh, or just put it up online. And people don't think about the entire revenue channel. Like how do I acquire a customer? How do I communicate with that customer to get them to want to use my product and how do I activate it? So for me, the um, understanding how that the continuum works and figuring out where the blockage is, is a super important uh, part of what, what you're just asking. Awesome. Awesome. I think that's a perfect way to kind of sum up the meat part of our interview. Um, but before we kind of end, I do like to end each episode on a little lighter exercise with something I like to call the rapid fire round. So I'm just going to ask you a set of questions and you kind of just give me whatever answers you come up with. Fire away. All right. So question number one is, what is your favorite book of all time? So I'm going to give you two answers there because I have reading for pleasure and then reading for business. And so Lord of the Rings, I read that when I was eight and I've probably picked it up every three years or so ever since. And I just like the the teamwork and uh, and the fantasy nature of it, all, obviously. So that's one. And then the Usually it's whatever book I've read in the last nine months that's influencing my work. So Measure What Matters by John Doerr. Mm, okay. Number two, who is the most influential person in your life or career? So when I was hired to, prior to going to business school, I worked in building materials distribution for George Pacific. And I was brought in by these uh, to warehouse or a competitor to start up a, a trading business for them. And Tom Robinson and Jim Fisher were these old late fifties guys where I am now. And they encouraged me of all things to be an entrepreneur within a large company 
before I went to business school. Uh, they just taught me really basic business lessons around customers and how uh, business works. And they were uh, two unique people. Awesome. Shout out to that. <laughs> uh, number three, what is one goal you want to accomplish this year? I'm completely focused on how digital transformation is hitting uh, the enterprise and how uh, in the future, even now, workers are going to have to supervise a flock of fairly self-aware AIs as well as robotic process automation. And uh, so the whole nature of work is going to change and what workers do. And so that, that's the goal is to put together that framework for us. Awesome. Um, and last one. Last but not least, what is one piece of advice you would give to your 20-year-old self? Well, you know me. I, I don't give one answer, so I'm going to violate that rule again. I put three buckets. Career, always put yourself in jobs where you can learn from both the position and your coworkers. Said differently, it makes no sense to go in and, and work for something for a lot of money if you're not learning anything or your boss doesn't have anything to teach you or your coworkers. Uh, personal finance. I've always had a rule that save early and often uh, compounding counts. I still have my first IRA from uh, or 401k from my company, uh, George Pacific, when I was 23, and it's grown. And it really, another rule is it takes $10 of earnings to have $5 to spend. So if you're going to spend money on something, just consider it really carefully. It takes more than you think. And then personal life, single business decision you'll ever make is who you decide to be with. And uh, if you pick the wrong person who's not compatible with you, for example, financially, it actually, uh, I've rarely seen it work out well. Awesome. Perfect. Perfect. Three pieces of advice to kind of end today's episode on. So Jim, I just want to thank you again for kind of jumping on and um, sharing your story and really allowing me to pick your brain and understanding um, how your mind works and how to think from a business perspective. I know I learned a lot, so I know uh, my audience will learn a lot as well. So yeah, thank you. You bet. It's been a pleasure, Rodney, and I really appreciate it. It's been an honor to be here. Yeah, for sure. But before you go, where can people learn more about you? Where can they learn more about your company if they want to um, get in touch and connect with you? Uh, best method is uh, LinkedIn. And I'm pretty open about taking connections. Uh, I have found that LinkedIn has changed a lot in that people are always trying to pitch me for things, but I do filter out the people who want to make an honest connection. And I generally have a, a soft spot for entrepreneurs. So I'm always happy to give some advice as well. Awesome. And I'll be sure to include all the links in the resources section. But with that being said, that ends today's podcast. Catch you guys on the next one. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Health Tech Hustle with Rodney Hu, founder of 209 Digital. Tune in next week for another interview with an expert leader in digital health.